Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Another, you know, I think my message last time was kind of short, like I promised, but then we extended it, extended our time together with a time of uh, testimonies and thanksgiving. Uh, I have a, uh, another, I think, pretty short message today. But I think you'll appreciate it. God spoke to me about some things during the prep. And this is kind of, you know, last week we wrapped up a two-parter on being thankful and giving thanks, two separate things. And technically speaking, I think Advent doesn't start until next Sunday. But number one, we don't observe the, strictly the church calendar per se. And... Uh, this isn't really an Advent message anyway. I'll call it a pre-Advent message. I do have a series of messages, Adventish messages, lined out for the next few weeks, but this is a pre-Advent message. Kind of like we used to say, uh, anybody ever call it uh, Christmas Eve Eve? Or maybe Christmas Eve Eve Eve? Or, you know, it's like you count the number of days before. So this is not an Advent message, but we're getting there. Next week, just to give you a heads up, next week we'll be taking what I hope is for us, a fresh look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. The week after that, we'll be talking about finding new hope in a world that seems to be growing hopeless. Then, the week after that, we will dig into the legitimacy of celebrating in the midst of suffering and pain that surround us. Don't these sound cheerful? Uh, they are, I promise. You'll, you'll appreciate these. And on Wednesday, as I mentioned, on the 20th, we'll have a simple time of singing and reflection, not really part of the Advent series, uh, but a, 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 I, I believe it'll be a rewarding time together. And then on the 24th, I will be bringing a message on welcoming Christ into our world and into our lives. Today, though, I want to talk to you a little bit about what some of us might go through at this particular time of year. And I don't want to be guilty of projecting my issues on you or anybody else. And obviously, we're at different stages in our life. We are, we are all dealing with different situations, different circumstances. But Thanksgiving is over. And depending on how you celebrated the holiday, there may have been a lot of preparation, a lot of planning, lots of shopping, Lots of cooking, invitations, travel maybe, juggling of schedules, and of course a lot of cleanup before and after the celebration. And now it's a week of turkey sandwiches, turkey casserole, turkey soup. Uh, for me it's a week of leftover oyster dressing crisped up in the toaster oven. And uh, just over the horizon is Christmas. Now, as we got closer and closer to Thanksgiving this year, uh, I was getting, I admit, a little stressed. And I don't like, I'm not typically a stressed kind of person. Pressure is one thing, but I typically don't let pressure stress me out. But I found myself getting a little bit stressed out at just how busy things seem to be in my life. And 
in the middle of everything else that I was trying to get done, I wanted to get my Christmas lights up early. I always want to get them up early, and I missed some beautiful weather to get that done and didn't get it done until a couple nights before Thanksgiving. So I did get them done. I spent, I was out there in the dark two nights in a row stringing lights together, and it's beautiful, so please drive by and appreciate it. Uh, and in the middle of all that, thanks to climate change or whatever, uh, I'm still mowing my lawn and, and some of yours too. And I want to uh, get some Christmas shopping done. I was, you know, for, I've spent most of my life as a last-minute shopper, but I really have a drive to get some stuff done. And, and you know, thank God for things like Amazon, where you can do a lot of that from the comfort of your home. But I want to get that done, and you can relate to this, I'm sure. Let's get as much of this out of the way so we can kick back and enjoy the season, right? Can anybody relate to that, or do you all just live there? Uh, and, you know, the closer we get to Christmas, the more I want the busyness and the obligations behind me. And all in all, it's, you know, I don't know if there's ever a bad time, but it's a pretty good time to take a look at our priorities. You know, what are we doing with all the hustle and the bustle and the plans and, and uh, the chores and the obligations? What's really important? I've heard this question uh, dozens of times in my life. You know, it's a challenge to what you're going to do with each new day. What would you do? I can't be the only one that's heard this question. What would you do if you knew tomorrow was your last day on earth? What would you do if you knew tomorrow was uh, the last day of your life? But let's be honest, that's not really a very useful question. I mean, if it really was, and you knew it was the last day of your life, uh, a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that's necessary for an orderly life would simply be shoved aside in favor of uh, much more pressing issues like goodbyes and wills and time with loved ones. And if you're a committed believer, a public statement of faith and a plea for everybody you know to call in the name of Christ. And we'll kind of come back to that. What I mean is, it's good to recognize what's truly important, but we really can't begin to live our lives every day as if it's the last day of our life. It kind of reminds me of people, and this is, these are things that happened in my lifetime, who were convinced, for instance, that the rapture was going to happen on a particular day, or even at a particular time of a particular day, and uh, decided, what the heck, we're not going to be around, and they went and racked up tens of thousands of dollars worth of credit card bills. Anybody remember this stuff besides me? Really? Just one person? Okay, yes, all right, several of you. Yeah, this, is, this was all over the place. And, uh, and maybe some people went up and sat on a mountaintop and just waited for the rapture. I guess they figured the closer, the closer they were to heaven when this thing started, the shorter the journey would be. I don't know. Uh, sold their possessions or just abandoned things and didn't, just, uh, and didn't take anything seriously because, hey, it's all over tomorrow or it's all over today. Or, even worse, that crazy Heaven's Gate cult back in 1996 uh, they, boy, that's, there's a weird story if you want to read about some, it, it's, it's amazing to me that anybody, it, it may, that the, the two people who led this weirdo bunch were, you know, how did they become convinced of this stuff? But how did they ever convince anybody else to believe what they believed? You know, one time they had like 200 followers. They convinced people that they were the two witnesses, two witnesses in Revelation uh, and that God had showed them that they were about to experience the next plane of human evolution and that they were going to be transferred in their living bodies to a new planet 
or a spaceship or something, and then one of the uh, founders of this religion died, and it sort of threw a monkey wrench into their theology. So then they started saying, well, what happens is our spirits will be transferred into new bodies on this planet. And they were tying, again, tying in a lot of poorly used scripture with uh, UFOs and alien spacecraft and things like that. And they finally, during the appearance of uh, Comet Hale-Bopp back in 1996, which was phenomenal, spectacular sight, they became convinced and convinced their followers that there was a spaceship hidden somewhere behind that comet and that on this comet's closest approach to Earth, that was when their spirits would travel to this spaceship and therefore they needed to free their spirits from their bodies on that day. And so what did they do? They commit mass ritual suicide. Merry Christmas, everybody. Isn't this a cheerful message? Now, we're wiser than that, and they were all wearing black Nikes. So check your feet, check your neighbor's feet. I didn't make that up. Nicole, anybody else? You can check that out on... Look that up. What am I trying to say? I don't know what I'm trying to say. What do you think I'm trying to say? I'll, I'll take suggestions. No, I won't. What I'm trying to say is that you and I, those of us who are believers in Christ anyway, must, of course... Be about kingdom business. We have a great commission. What are we supposed to be doing all the time? Somehow living the gospel, preaching the gospel. It's written right there in case you forget. But what else do we have to do? We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to work, earn, pay bills, raise kids, clean house, do laundry. Get educated. Participate in society maintain our health, and a host of other worldly tasks. We have to straddle that line between being so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good and being so worldly-minded we're no heavenly good. Because we are citizens of heaven, but we live in this world. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading this verse uh, out of the New American Standard Bible. I, it's not a, not a very big difference. I just like it because it ends where I finish reading is actually the end of a sentence in the NASB. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And it goes on to talk about God's promises, these great and precious promises, and all that means for us. Now, one way of looking at verse 3 there is simply that he provides us everything we need to live a godly life, and that's valid, but I like the way it's worded here in the NASB and other uh, translations, that he, give it, he gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Because the great and precious promises of God are not just for heaven. They're not even just for ministry, at least as we often think of ministry. Things that you've received, uh, healing that you received, what is that for? Is that just so you can give so that you could testify to the healing power of God? 
Is it just to make you healthy so that you can go and do the ministry he's called you to do? It is certainly for those things. You know what else healing is important for? So that you can work and earn and pay your bills and raise your kids and do all the other stuff we just talked about. Think about some of the miracles that Jesus did. When he fed the multitudes twice, did he say, wow, look at this crowd. What a great opportunity this would be to show them what I'm capable of. Hey, guys, bring me those few loaves and fishes. Stand back and watch this. Why did he do those miracles? Because there were hungry people there. He fed the multitudes because the multitudes were hungry. His miracles were to meet specific needs. Some of them were life-saving and even life-restoring. Some of them were more mundane, like turning water into wine because they ran out at a wedding. You know, he, uh, he sent uh, Peter to go catch a fish with a coin in its mouth so that they could pay the temple tax, not so that he could say, ta-da, look what I can do. He lived a life of purpose, and he never wavered from his mission or his calling, but he lived in the real world. Paul worked with his hands, making tents in Corinth, and he worked also at Ephesus. And look at us, you know, between the time that we have to spend at work or at school and sleeping, and then the time we have to take for hygiene, nourishment, chores, there are only a few days, a few hours a day that we can call our own. I don't know if we can call them our own, the discretionary time. And we should probably take a minute, this isn't what this sermon's about, so I'm not going to take much more than that, if that, but... Uh, we should take a little bit of time to talk about what we do with that time and how what we do with that time can make all the difference in the world. And I'm talking about uh, our entertainment choices, uh, investing in relationships. These are all things that are good, they're healthy, as long as our entertainment choices uh, are, are not things that are going to pollute us, as long as the relationships we're investing in are worth investing in. Are they going to draw you closer to God, or are they going to pull you away from God? I heard John George say this years ago. I wrote it inside the cover of one of my Bibles, that the value of any relationship in your life can be measured by its contribution to your priorities. If we are going to do what we're called to do, we have to make time to feed on the Word of God, to pray, to worship, all within that little window of discretionary time that we have after all the things we have to do. More to the point, I guess, uh, for today's message is this. It's a very familiar verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You don't have to be preaching to glorify God. You don't need to be leading praise and worship to glorify God. Don't misunderstand me. We have to pray. 
We must worship. We must preach. But we are to glorify God all the time, even when we are just living. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, It has long been known that our lives' stories do not follow an even course over the years. And that's certainly true. Uh, it's true in the sense that he meant it, that there's a time when we'll achieve our greatest success, experience our greatest influence, or experience the worst crisis of our lives. But life doesn't stay there, and it doesn't move smoothly in one direction. It's true, that same principle is true, in, in simple terms of busyness. There are times when we are going to feel overwhelmed with the number of things we have to do and take care of, and there's times where we've got seasons of rest. What we have to do is, is take care that we don't allow even legitimate busyness to cause us to abandon our Christian witness or to neglect the things that are of lasting importance. Just because you are busy doing things that really do need to be done, you still need to do them somehow in a way that glorifies God. Every now and then, I bring out my 10 things sermon, which I think I preached just about a year ago, uh, the last time I preached it here. And I'm not going to preach it today, but I am going to list those 10 things for you by way of reminder so you can jot them down if you've lost the list. And you can jot down the scripture references too. But these are things we need to be doing all the time. These need to be part of the things that we do every day, like working and raising our kids and hygiene and everything else. When I talk about the busyness and borderline chaos of the season, I don't mean just the superfluity of obligations that we deal with as individuals and families. There's also an uptick in uh, opportunities here at the church. I mentioned this in a recent podcast episode, that pastors have to be careful about overburdening the congregation, but still provide opportunities for service and fellowship. So let me take a minute to clarify this. We do our best to make you aware of opportunities to gather for fellowship, uh, to serve. You know, we've got fun days and we've got work days. Here at Living Word, with a number of things that we, that we have going on, along with community efforts like the Thanksgiving dinner we did, the Thanksgiving service we just recently celebrated, uh, the rice meal packing event that we've got coming up in, I think, February. Um, tonight, or, or next week, the tree lighting ceremony, the upcoming ladies' brunch, yesterday's hanging of the greens, all this stuff is going on. And some needs uh, that we have are ongoing, like the need to constantly be re recruiting and uh, uh, making sure we, our, our children's ministry is well-staffed. Uh, we've got small groups, prayer meetings, uh, etc. What I need you to understand is I don't, you don't need to feel like, I hope you don't feel like I'm pressuring you to do everything. None of us can participate in everything that's going on at the church. We just want to provide enough opportunities so that hopefully you can participate in something. Because sometimes you would say, I would love to do that, just can't do it because of the timing, uh, going to be out of town, whatever, uh, doesn't work with my work schedule. So we try to provide enough opportunities so that you can join us doing something. Uh, at the same time, big, 
huge thank you to, to those of you who go above and beyond in terms of the areas in which you serve, the regularity with which you serve, and, and how you give. Because uh, I'm talking about uh, opportunities both in giving and serving, and some of you go above and beyond. But the thrust of this message is not about serving in the church. It's not even about priorities. It's about finding that center, that sweet spot that allows us to live and move and have our being in him, even if we might feel like we're just getting through another day or just getting through another week. Right after Thanksgiving, but with Christmas not quite right around the corner. It seems like a good time to remember these things. What do we do between the feasts? So here are some things to do, to be doing, not just now, but always. And I'm going to do my best to just read these and not preach it. Uh, but I think if you do these, if we make a point of doing these things, and none of these are going to shock you, like, well, I should be doing that. It's just putting them in a form to remember. But if we do these things, we will, we will ultimately bring glory to him and bear witness of him to the world. It'll make us more sensitive to being led by him. So number one, and these are in not, I'm not ranking these. These are just, it's a list, but it's not like most important to least important or vice versa. Number one, walk in forgiveness. You read and study the Bible, you will see that the issue of forgiveness is front and center right through it, dealing with sin. And as far as you and I are concerned, we must walk in forgiveness because the number one thing that we hang our theological hat on is we have been forgiven by God through the blood of Christ. Mark 11, beginning in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's pretty good motive to forgive right there, isn't it? Number two, praise the Lord. Always remember he's worthy of praise. No matter what you're going through, you're not always praising him for the circumstances you're in, but you're recognizing that whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing in life, he's still God and he's still worthy of your praise. This is a long scripture passage, so bear with me as I read it to you. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's it. Number three, tithe and give offerings. Don't need to waste time with me arguing about whether the tithe is Old Testament law that we've been redeemed from. The question is, uh, Whose is it to begin with? What did he say to do with it? Whether he calls it the tithe or he calls it an offering or calls it a gift, uh, giving is not something that God ever intended uh, to be optional for us. And it's not because he needs our money. When I tell you to give and encourage you to give, it's not because we need your money. It's because that's the avenue that God has created to bring blessings to us. Here it is. Don't just grit your teeth and do it, by the way. Learn to love it. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, 
not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Number four, watch your mouth. And I mean that in two very specific ways. Certain words shouldn't be a part of our vocabulary. It's a bad witness. And watch your confession. Your words have power, so be careful about what you're saying about yourself, about your family, uh, about your circumstances, and make sure that what you are saying with your powerful mouth is in line with the Word of God. James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Number five, be sexually pure. Um, it, it, it grieves me. It should grieve anybody who has a heart for the things of God at just how casually this issue is treated. And we in the church, unfortunately, uh, we find ourselves focusing on a narrow slice of this issue and condemn certain expressions of sexuality while ignoring sexual sin that falls into what we would call more normal parameters when the Bible is very clear that there is one and only one proper expression of, of that gift and that facility that God has given us, and that is between one man and one woman who are married to each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. Body and in your spirit, which are God's. Number six, share your faith. When people talk about my relationship with God is nobody's business but mine and God's, they are not standing on any scriptural ground. This is what you need to remember. Nobody's a Christian because they go to a, a, a particular church. Nobody's a Christian because they were raised in a Christian home. The decision is yours. Becoming a Christian is a personal experience. However, it is not a private faith. You understand? You don't, you don't automatically become a Christian because you're part of the pack. You personally have to confess Christ. But your relationship with God is not a private affair. He has called us into relationship with him and with one another. And he is building not just you as a spiritual being. He is building you, putting you together as part of his church that he has promised to build. Okay? Uh, so, all that to say, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we're talking about the church later in this list. But share your faith. You are meant to tell people what God has done for you and what they need to do to be saved. Because when you become a Christian, you don't just decide to live a certain way or follow certain principles. You have acknowledged that you needed what happened at the cross in order to be saved from sin and death and hell. We have a goal. Matthew 28. 
uh, verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Number seven. This always seems to be everybody's favorite because it's so theologically deep. Number seven is be nice. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Be nice. Jesus said, if you've been nice, if you've done good to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Do good unto all men, said, wrote Paul, especially those of the household of faith. Romans chapter 12. This one actually is kind of a long passage. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Be nice. Christians should be nice. Number eight, read your Bible. This is huge. God can reveal himself in many ways. He can reveal himself through the words of somebody else, through uh, manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit, through dreams, visions, uh, ideas. But the one way he absolutely, concretely reveals himself to us is in his word, the written word of God. You cannot know God's will without studying God's word. Everything that, that we know about Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, we don't worship the book. We worship Jesus. But if the Jesus we are worshiping and following is not the Jesus of the Bible, we are in error. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number nine, pray. And uh, this is, uh, I, I have admitted to you in the past, and, and this is less and less true, I, I, I happily report, is that over the years, uh, I, I, I can certainly say this was true uh, 10, certainly 20 years ago, that I had much rather spend uh, two hours reading and studying the Bible than 10 minutes praying. Praying was much more of a discipline for me. Uh, but prayer has become easier and easier. The longer I apply myself to it, the longer I practice it, the longer I know Jesus, the easier it is to spend that time in prayer and recognize it. I've always recognized how powerful and important it is. I think maybe uh, this is conjecture, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I think maybe men find it harder uh, than women generally speaking, because we're maybe more let's get something done uh, minded rather than, and we see prayer as too passive. 
But if we understand prayer for what it really is, we understand it's one of the most active and powerful things we can engage in. Um, but it requires a humility because it recognizes our inability to do anything without him. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And number 10. Go to church. Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. No matter where you were when you found God, some of you, many of you, perhaps most of you, when you made your decision to follow Christ, you did it in church. You answered an altar call. You maybe came right up in front of everybody. I know many of you did. Uh, some of you I prayed with. And you gave your heart to Christ right there at church in a moment. Uh, some of you, it was at home. I got saved at home in a chair, curled up in a ball because I was afraid I would die that night and I didn't want to wait till the next church service to get saved. Uh, some of you got saved in conversations. It, it, but it doesn't matter where you were when you met Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and where you got saved is one thing. Where he plugs you in and where he fits you together with, with, with the rest of the body is another. Uh, we, he really has not left that as an option for us. We must be a part of a body of believers. And it really works both ways. The church needs you, and you need the church. But as I uh, have often said, uh, the church needs you like a hand needs a finger. You need the church like a finger needs a hand. You see? You've got to be connected in, uh, to that. Uh, and this is, where, this is where God ministers that life to us as a body. Now, uh, I'm going to wrap this up here in a minute. So praise the worship team. You can actually be making your way forward. We are getting into some messages here in the next few weeks that I'm excited about. I'm excited about them because they do uh, center on the Christmas story, which is my favorite thing to celebrate. I know, again, doctrinally speaking, theologically speaking, Easter is where it's at. That's what's important. But there is something about the anticipation and the longing and the waiting that we experience, that I've experienced since I was a kid about Christmas that speaks so powerfully to Israel's longing and waiting and looking for the Messiah. And uh, how that translates to you and I, longing and searching and waiting for his return, which he has promised. And meanwhile, here we are with weeks to go. And I want you, I hope that you found this message encouraging. We're all, we still have life to get through. And some people, they have an idealized view of what it would be like. I want to be a truly godly person. Uh, and they think they can only do that uh, with a title or with a position in a church or with a, a, a ministry that has been officially recognized. And I'm here to tell you that every one of you is a minister. If you are a believer, you are a minister. And you are serving God by doing these day-to-day -day things, if you do them. I'm talking not just about these 10 things I said. These, these 10 things are the framework 
for us to observe and order our lives around while we eat and sleep and work and earn and raise our kids and maintain our health and everything else. We can do all those things to the glory of God if we observe this framework. And God will be glorified and people will be brought to Christ as long as we, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, stand up with me while I really wrap this up. Because there were a couple things in that list that really bear thinking about. And I know, uh, I don't know every single person in here, but I know most of you. Um, I'm speaking to a room full of Christians, people who have made the decision to follow Christ. This is what is beautiful about this season. One of the many things that is beautiful about this season that we are getting ready to enter. When we talk about the incarnation, when Jesus, when God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us as a man, he did that for a very specific reason. And it wasn't just to show us how to live. He certainly showed us how to live, didn't he? But he came on a very specific mission to save us. That was the birth announcement. There is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Save us from what? From sin, from death, and from hell. Jesus, the gentle baby in the manger, the man of peace, the man of sorrow, also spoke really scary, red-hot, scorching words against sin and gave the most vivid description of hell of anybody in the Bible. Jesus is trustworthy. And no matter how you picture hell to yourself, don't kid yourself about whether it exists. You were created to live forever. And God's plan is for you to live forever in his presence. And I understand the idea here because in one, in, 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 in one fashion it sort of makes sense that if I'm a pretty good person, then obviously if there really is a heaven and really is a hell, there's nothing I've done that deserves hell. And I can understand that thinking, but I'll ask you this. What do you think you've done that deserves heaven? We're talking about unimaginable glory and pleasures forever, evermore. I'm not saying you're a bad person. What have you done to deserve that? We haven't done a thing to deserve that. And in fact, once we begin to look at ourselves from God's perspective, we see that those little things, because you're not claiming to be perfect, right? Anybody in here think you're perfect? Those imperfections become magnified in the presence of God, in the presence of true holiness. Those little things that just might bug you about yourself or might bug others about you, uh, we recognize them for what they are. They're sin. They're a result of our fallen nature. We inherited it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. None of us are righteous. According to the word of God, there is none righteous. No, not one. We all need a Savior. If we could do this on our own, it's nice and it's wonderful and it's sweet to think about that gentle sleeping baby in the manger and the shepherds and then the gifts later on that the Magi brought him, but he was all leading toward this horrible 
torturous death on a cross. That was the plan. That, the cross didn't happen because things went off the rails. That's what he came for. And if it were possible for us to save ourselves by our own obedience, our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own niceness, God would not have put the Son through that. Jesus died on the cross because it was the only way, because sin in, brings about death. There is a penalty. And God, being just, can't ignore our sin. It has to be judged. So what did he do? He did what only he could do. He took your sin, took my sin, and laid it on Jesus and punished that sin, judged that sin at the cross. So our sin has already been judged. Our sin has already been punished. And when Jesus rose from the dead, what he offers us is not guilt, not condemnation, but new life. We don't kid ourselves and say, well, I've never had a sinful thought since then. I've never committed sin since then. It's just that all of our sin has already been judged. And he empowers us to live a righteous life before God. And meanwhile, because according to the word, we are in him, God can now legally see us as righteous. And since we are righteous, we can go, to, go before him when we need something, when we desire something. He delights in our presence because we go before him in the presence of his son. There's a lot wrapped up in that. My question is a simple one. Have you made that decision? Have you recognized your need for a savior? And have you personally confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord? Because it's as simple as that. It doesn't end there, but it certainly starts there. You don't slowly become a Christian. You can make the decision to become a Christian today, to be born again, to be saved, join the family of God, believers, whatever you want to call it, that starts with a decision. Then there is growth in the word. But you go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light like that, with a decision, with the words of your mouth. Paul put it this way, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you want to be saved today? If you're not certain about where you will spend eternity, make that decision today. You cannot lose. I am not promising you that life will suddenly be sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. It won't, according to the word of Jesus. In this world, you'll have trouble. Difference is, he is going through all of it with you because he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And this life, no matter how nasty it treats you sometimes, this life will be over and then we are with him forever. Meanwhile, while we are here, he fills our lives with a purpose that you can't imagine to even exist without him. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And when I'm done praying, if you want to make that decision, be bold, don't be shy, and don't hesitate. It's only the most important decision you'll ever make. And everybody in here will rejoice with you as you make it. Come and receive Christ today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us these clear commands, instructions, guidelines on how to live our lives in a way that glorifies you. We don't have to grasp for one thing that we can find to please you. You've given us very simple ways to do that. We're grateful for it. Thank you also for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives who empowers us to do the things you've called us to do. And Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place today and doing what only you can do, which is to uh, convince every one of us of our need for a Savior. 
I know it's the prayer of every believer in the sound of my voice that if there is one, even one, who has not responded to that offer of eternal life, that you would grant them the conviction uh, and the humility and the wisdom and the boldness to seize that opportunity today and come and receive that free gift of eternal life that you offer through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you come. Let me pray for you as we sing. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.